Hey, what up? This is Gino Ray. You are listening to Between Two Cultures. I'm sorry. Native as I can be, Between Two Cultures. And I'm your host, Gino Ray. I think I mentioned that. I am uh, laying in bed next to a very sick Chaveo, Philip Charles Batray. Um, some sort of viral thing goop coming out of his eyes and everything so um uh just laying here relaxing and uh listening to him snore um having a lot of fun with the podcast this will be episode number six so uh six weeks into it interviewing uh a person i've never met before but was uh kind of put in touch with by a guy i work with his name's quentin quentin gardner fascinating story and uh this is going to be uh the longest uh podcast i've done to date just because there was so much to cover so we basically broke it up into two parts we're kind of just getting his personal uh journey but then we're going to talk about his band full metal jackson which is a heavy metal uh michael jackson cover band so uh and we we went for an hour uh two nights ago and we could have gone on even longer but uh uh we i want to make this uh uh you know somewhat concise and uh try to try to hold the listener's attention but really interesting guy really wild story um and uh he just had been uh I think wanting to to tell this story for a while, so um, I'm excited. I'm going to be talking to him in a couple nights to kind of do part two uh, about the band, and uh, that should be pretty interesting because I want to know how you come up with a Michael Jackson cover band that plays heavy metal. I, the uh, the idea is just funny to me. So, um, had a good time last week episode. Um, with Nikki and Noah and talking about interracial relationships. And, uh, I got a text from Noah afterwards, uh, just saying that, uh, you know, they had thought of some more examples of, uh, I guess things they had bumped into or encountered or whatever, uh, as an interracial couple. And that's what I found about doing these podcasts is I always think of something afterwards that would, would have fit so well or been a good follow up or, in a good direction to take it but what can you do um it's my i've done five of these so i think it's all right if there's a couple wrinkles um so um yeah and and on that note as far as uh being five episodes into this i am definitely uh looking for people that uh whether they're mixed or they they have a view on uh, race relations now or race relations back in the day, which was a Wednesday. Um, if you if you feel like you got uh, something to say or have a, a voice or uh, maybe don't like, uh, maybe you think uh, everybody's being too sensitive about race nowadays. 
I would uh, love to have you on. Or if you know somebody that would, um, get me in touch with them. I'm always looking for guests. I've got some emails out to a couple different places. And uh, um, definitely uh, looking for people to uh, have uh, good conversations with. So you won't make any money off of it. But you will be helping me out. So um, on that note, let's go ahead and get into... uh, Quentin Gardner part one and then we will get into Quentin Gardner part two thank you for listening let's go all right we are gathered here again on a Sunday afternoon Sunday evening to speak with um, Quentin Gardner of the band Full Metal Jackson uh, this is a very interesting interview for me because this is the first time in this podcast I'm interviewing somebody I've never met before and uh, don't even really know a whole lot about. So uh, this should be pretty fun um, learning some new things and hearing some new ideas. And uh, So thanks for, thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Very excited to do it. Okay, so now I'm I'm gonna get some of this wrong, I'm sure, but your parents are they're they I was told they're either classically trained musicians or they're opera singers or what what's yeah, the story? Yeah, they're, they're 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 opera solos. So they they sing they sing uh, lead and supporting roles in operas uh, all over the world. So you know, all across America, Europe. Asia, uh, Australia. Uh, did, we, we spent a lot of time everywhere, pretty much except like parts of Asia and South America and Russia. So, like, yeah, but yeah, so, so yeah, they're opera soloists. And what's uh, are they both black? No, so my dad's my dad's a white guy uh, from uh, his family's originally from Earlville, New York, tiny little like almost a hamlet i guess like just a tiny tiny little village in 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 upstate new york and my mom's family is from smithfield virginia uh represent shout out smithfield meatpacking plant um and uh she was born um it's a it's a really it's it's kind of a really interesting thing about her origin is we're not really 100 percent sure about it Right. Uh, her, mo- her mother's black, um, and up until sh- a few years ago, uh, she thought she shared a sister, uh, uh, a father with her closest sister, um, and they were. She was always told, growing up, that that they had the same father, and he was uh, black and and Native American heritage, um, and he was. Uh, uh, by all accounts, a pretty gruff person, and he was and and into some shit. I mean, they, they there was, uh, you know, the kind of shit that goes on in the in the in the, in the swamp in Smithfield back in the day. My 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 grandmother, I don't think when the when the kids were young, but she eventually ended up running like the local Negro speakeasy uh, in Smithfield. So she was like selling gin for 
you know, a Nicholas shot or whatever out of the place. And obviously there's no regulation. So all kinds, all kinds of shit would go down, uh, at the house. But her, um, my mom, like I said, my mom thought that she and her sister shared the same father. And then, uh, a few years ago, well, maybe about half a decade ago now, I was thinking about, um, starting a, a food cart business probably even longer ago than that, probably like six, seven years. And I, um, I asked my mom if she had any pictures of her father because I was, um, you know, I wanted to give it kind of a family theme and I wanted to show my, my ancestors and my, my very white grandfather who was, uh, who was, uh, he lived in Hell's Kitchen and, um, other parts of New York at one point after he, when he grew up and he was, uh, he did a, lots of different jobs. One of which was he was a, a hot dog vendor on Coney Island for a little while. And he's, I think he sold sabrettes. I'm not sure, but I was like, I, you know, I want to see if I can find a picture of Cliff selling hot dogs. And then if I can find a picture, I was like, do you just have any pictures of your father? So she went to her sister and was, and was talking to her about it. And, um, and I, I think, it, I think yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch of this story. But um, she's like, she's like, well, you know, I you keep saying our father, our father. And her sister's like, we don't have the same father. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is like a you know a sixty-seven year old woman or some sixty-six year old woman. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, my father's so and so and so and so. Your father's BC Birdsong, which was a name she'd never heard before. Um. But his family was like a rich, an affluent white family that lived in Suffolk, Virginia. And uh, my my great grandmother used to clean houses. And I guess one day she decided to take my, or she used to take my grandmother along with her to do work. And this was when this would have been when my grandma was a little older, uh, in her twenties, and that. And um, they. Uh, and, you know, she ended up pregnant and apparently everyone in a town except my mother knew that her father was this white guy whose family owned like a furniture business or something like that. And he used to come around, but my mom was sent away from her family when she was 10 years old. She was sent to live in, uh, I'll say Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, um, could be wrong about that. I just a couple of different places, but she went to live with a friend of the family's. Um, and I just feel like I'm just rambling on. <laughs> well, the, this stuff is fascinating, and and you know, and the the crazy thing about it is, is you know, it's not the only story like that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm, and this is this is why I'm totally. So I'll, I'll just keep going. Stop me if you have any questions. Okay. Um, so she uh, she ended up. Um, going to live with a friend of the families who was uh like a she was like a, a real pillar of her community she was the head of the school board she was involved in all kinds of uh, outreach programs for youth at the time and um she was a very strict disciplinarian so my mother went from living in a swamp in smithfield virginia with a mother who worked two three jobs and was never home she was raised by her sisters so it was a lot, you know, a lot of freedom, a lot of hijinks, a lot of tomfoolery. And then all of a sudden, 10 years old, boom, she's stuck in this sort of very strict 
uh, situation where she's the only child. And she thought that she was sent because her mother couldn't afford to take care of all the kids that she had. And she had, at, at the time, we thought, and it was would have been one to four kids from three different fathers. But it turns out it's probably more like four, four kids from four different fathers. But, um, but uh, she, so my mother always thought that she was sent away to sort of, sort of take care of a financial hardship on the family but in light of newer evidence we kind of assume that the chances are that she was sent away because they wanted to avoid the scandal um and because black families keep secrets like i mean <laughs> like I, I, I don't i don't know any other community that's that tight-lipped when it comes to stuff like that uh, mm-hmm. so anyway uh it was just um uh she ends up in, in, uh, I, don't know, I keep saying North Carolina, but I'm not sure if that is what, but, uh, her, her aunt, she called her Aunt Annie, um, you know, had a very strict regimen. So when you got up in the morning, uh, chores, it was just chores and school. That's like all you did. My mom said she had two hours on a Saturday afternoon to ride her bicycle. That was the only spare the only time she ever had to herself to just do what she wanted. And her that her that if she misbehaved, her aunt would punish her by not letting her go to school. <laughs> because going to school was such a was like a wonderful thing right. for her. Which there's some there's some genius to this woman's method this this to Aunt Annie's method, you know, mm-hmm. that <laughs> that she would beg her to let her go to school. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, there's a pretty intense level of home living. She wasn't, she wasn't allowed to sit on the edge of her bed because beds aren't for sitting on there for lying on and you can right. mess up, you know, the side of whatever she, she did. Uh, she did the dishes every night. Um, she, she vacuumed, she cleaned. And, and the crazy thing is, you know, of course she did all that stuff. For, I mean, up into her her adult life too, and my father and I were dreadful slobs. And my father, you know, my dad came from a, a, a situation where he never really had to pick up after himself. Yeah. And, and so she continued to, to to do that, which is which is crazy. This is like I feel like this could be hours and hours. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll we'll try and jump ahead. So did so did yeah. they did they meet uh, your parents? Did they meet through music or before music or how did that? Yeah. Come about? So they they met um, they met performing an opera, uh, playing two roles. They only played once. So my mother was playing. I want to say. Michaela and Carmen and my father was playing a character called Zuniga and after that and after they got together every time after that they were both playing lead roles so she was playing Carmen and he was playing Escamillo but um, that was like they met and and hit it off I think I think my dad may have had a girlfriend at the time I can't remember but they 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 got together and then ended up doing. They ended up doing uh, uh, some sort of a rarity, an opera tour with this guy Peter Brook, who was a, a, a very famous theater director, English theater director who worked out of Paris, uh, and he had this theater in Paris called uh, Les Bouffes du Nord. 
and he decided he was going to do an opera. And so he did an, a theatrical adaptation with full music of Carmen um, and took it on the and took it around the world. Um, and they did that tour three times, I think. One of which I was in utero, and then two, two of which I was. Or maybe one before I was, but at least I think two of which I was on. So what but, year? Uh, what year would that have been then? So that would have been like uh, so, like nineteen eighty-one, and then when I was alive would have been like so, like eighty-four, eighty-five, I think, like around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that's that's how, but that's how they 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 met doing. Carmen and then they they got together and they started doing this uh, they moved to Binghamton, New York which is where I was born uh, which is a, no one really knows much about Binghamton now This uh, it's uh, one of those little American cities that just got decimated by economic you know mm-hmm. uh, depression and, and, and all kinds of other industries moving out IBM was actually founded there um, and uh, built up very big and a lot of people there was like a lot of a lot of stuff going on there um, they had you know like some musicians like Slam Stewart who wrote that song the flat foot Flugie, he lived there um, and they had this uh, this opera program uh Tri-Cities Opera, TCO, which was uh, founded by this guy, Peyton Hibbett, this guy, Carmen Savoca, and uh, Placido Domingo went through their program. That was kind of like their big original claim to fame. Uh, and uh, so there was a lot going on in this place. And then, and there was also uh, factory manufacturing um, weapons, Lockheed Martin, people like that, uh, and, and and then all of a sudden everything just kind of pulled out all at once. <laughs> so <laughs> it's this kind of thing. kind of uh, gritty, you know, industrial sort of town with a with a flourishing opera with program a, with, with a flourishing like just art art scene kind of in general. It was like a really interesting place, and it was very multicultural, and there were an inordinate amount of interracial relationships right around the time that my parents were together as well. So a lot of my friends growing up were mixed, or a lot of kids that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was a kind of a utopic place. Like, I, rem- like we rem- I remember it from my childhood, just like, even folks, because even, even like working class people had shit, like they had enough to feel like, good and to feel uplifted and you know people were going to the park we were the, the carousel capital of the world people had uh, uh it was just all kind there was just all kinds of stuff going on and then it just it, it came to such a grinding halt and there was nothing for the youth to do and um it's it, you know in that in this landscape of of joblessness and boredom of course it's just nothing breeds nothing good breeds in that Right. environment and anyway uh getting off the, cake, the, the the track again but so my parents they met and they, they go to this this uh to try to these opera to this opera program and what they did at tco was they would basically 
you would pay for your lessons, they would get you, they would like get you sort of this cheap, nice, cheap housing because the people that were on the opera board, a lot of them owned a bunch of real estate in the city. So you would get this like affordable housing that was nice and you would only have to work part time and then you would come to your lessons and you would pay for those, but then you would, when you perform, you would be paid for your performances. So you got to, to see what it was really like on a small microcosmic scale to be in the opera world. Um, and they went, they both excelled in this program. And what ends up happening is after, after, uh, you, you know, that you get to a certain echelon, they feel like you're ready to move on. They'll, they would take you to opera houses in Europe or, you know, to places where people they knew worked and they would, you know, audition you around essentially. Um, and so I'm probably skipping ahead, but my, my father basically when I was like seven years old, uh, we just spent a lot of time traveling around and sort of being all over the world. And what Binghamton was still our, um, home base. And, uh, when I was seven, like two weeks after I turned seven, we moved to Germany because my father got a, a job singing in Cologne. Uh, opera house which was like a, a contract position and uh was a very sort of prestigious thing um that made a decent amount of money my mom on the other hand kind of just did a lot of the stuff that people wanted to see her do um so she did the same like a like a, a smaller repertoire but she did it much like all over the world and a lot of the time in much bigger venues um so we were split up a lot once we moved to Europe. I think the idea was that if we moved to Germany, we would all be able to be together more. But for various reasons, it was very difficult. Immigration is very difficult over there. And my mom not having a job offer in Germany, she wasn't allowed to work in Germany. So she had to be gone all the time. Let's, you should probably guide me or steer okay. me a little bit. Um, well, so, so if you're coming from this like idea like, um kind of a place with a lot of mixed um, kids yeah. and couples and going to Germany. What what was that like? Was so that was, it was really difficult because I had just really started to sort of figure out how I fit into my community as a kid, like in, what was I Like I had just gotten out of first grade. And uh, there was a, a two kids that I was friends with that I've been friends with like my whole life like either from age like two or three or age five and I was like really uh, ha really happy in Binghamton and when we moved it was only supposed to be for like two years it was supposed to be like we're going to be gone for two years which you know to a seven year old feels like right. I mean, a third of your life span uh, so when we got when we got there I just kept saying, you know, it's only going to be for a couple of years, but it, but that got harder and harder to say to yourself just because it just didn't, it didn't matter. It was like, it's so brutal right now. <laughs> like, yeah. first thing I know, I mean, first of all, I mean, Cologne is, Binghamton's a pretty dreary place weather-wise, but Cologne was almost more so because there wasn't, like, at least in Binghamton, we had rain and thunderstorms and lightning. But in Germany, the weather's much more like it is here. It's just like gray and it drizzles. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's fine 
Except, I mean, here we have way more interesting cloud formations in Portland. So that's in Oregon. So that's something I like. In Germany, it's just like concrete sky. Like in Cologne, Cologne it was just a concrete sky most of the time. And the, I didn't understand it at the time, of course, because I, we didn't really... It was before the internet, and we didn't have any idea what we were walking into as an interracial family. Uh, but the... It, I, I had never... I mean, I was around my parents all the time because we were traveling, so I was pretty sheltered up until that point. But I had never, it was the first time that I ever saw hatred in a stranger's eyes, I think, <laughs> was yeah. when we moved to Germany. And did, um, they, did they try to brace you for that at all? No, not really. I don't think they, I think they were very naive in the sense that they thought, up until pretty recently even still, that the that people were basically good and that the world was basically moving in a direction of acceptance. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know jack shit about Germany. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not really. And they'd be like, oh, it's a developed European country. And, oh, World War Two that was so long ago. Um, right. So we get over there and... Yeah, they only uh, tried to take on the world a couple of times. You know, the country of Germany. Well, they, they've, how, been, how they've been all over They've been all over the place, but when you're just traveling, when you're an entertainer traveling from place to place, eating in fancy restaurants, first of all, if you're an entertainer, it doesn't matter what color you are most of the time. People are just like, oh, you know, they yeah. get excited. It's like uh, it's like that scene in Do the Right Thing where Spike Lee's character is telling John Turturro's character that all his all of his heroes are black, mm-hmm. and yet he hates black people. Um, it's, 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 it's like a similar... Like if you're if you're singing opera, if you're part of high culture, then it's 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 totally different. Then you're just exotic. Then it's like almost more amazing. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, so they're not really getting a taste of real life. Exactly, exactly. So when you live somewhere and you have to see the same people every day, strangers every day in the same situation, it's a whole different kettle of fish. So I remember when I was a kid, so I was like seven years old, I moved to Germany, and uh, after the first couple of weeks, my mom would take me on the because my parents kept saying, what do we do about, you know, uh, child care? And they were like, and the Germans were like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, we can't just leave them at home alone. And they were like, yes, why not? <laughs> like, all Germans leave their children home. You just, you just, you lock the door and you tell them don't open it for strangers. There's, you know, there's not, and, and there really wasn't a lot of crime. And people, very different idea. People, kids are much more self-sufficient at that age. But, um, so my mom, so they were like, same thing. They're like, well, how did, about getting to school? We have to drive to school every day. And they're like, oh, he can take the tram. So my tram journey, my journey to school was probably like 35 minutes. And it was, which consisted of a seven minute walk, a 20 minute uh, tram ride, and then another however many minute walk to get into, into, my, into my school. But you know, there's a, but it was a, there's a lot that can happen on that tram ride, and <laughs> and uh, a lot did happen to me on tram rides here, one way or the other, um, or different experiences I had riding public transport my whole life. But it's at, at that age, it was uh, it was interesting. Like the first, so the first person who yelled at me, the first person who just flipped out at me for, for a small thing was as I was riding my bicycle. And I rang my bell, and I think the guy, the, the older gentleman ahead of me, was deaf. I mean, I have a hearing aid. But I scuffed his pants with my with my wheel. 
and the dude just lost his fucking shit. <laughs> Turned around <laughs> and got right in my face, and he was like wearing one of those crazy little Bavarian hats with the the feather coming out of it, which is think that's not a very cologne thing to do. And he's yelling in my face, and he's pointing at me, and he's telling me my that my mother's gonna have to pay for his for his laundry bills, and he's calling me a little beast and all other stuff or whatever. I had never experienced anything like that. A stranger had never flipped out on me before. Mm-hmm. Certainly not a completely grown person, and I was a child. So that, like, that's threw me through a loop. Um, and that was all in German. Also, back, I ended up going back and talking to my mom about that, um, and she was pissed because just a couple of days before we had been on the tram, and she, the first thing we realized when we got to Germany was like, oh shit, people are staring at us, and not like you know looking looking away like people mm-hmm. like every single person on this tram is staring directly at us <laughs> yeah and and what's interesting is that first of all german society especially at that time i don't know what it's like now but like eye contact their comfort zone and comfort level for staring at each other and being looked at is much different than ours and there was actually a study that was done sometime like in the the late, late 90s, I think, or like the early aughts of like the different countries and how long it's, how many seconds to the second that it's acceptable to stare somebody, look at somebody, depending mm-hmm. on where you are. In Germany, it's very long. You can like, you can just look at people. Um, but I used to drive my mother fucking crazy because she was just like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Yeah. Why, you know, and she she literally, she, she booga boogered some people. Like she would just look back at people and go, booga booga. <laughs> because <laughs> she was like what the hell are you staring at so <laughs> so this guy I stepped in the pants he yelled at me I was like whatever the, 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 the point of this though the next part of the story is uh, once I started riding the tram by myself the first person who ever beat the shit out of me in my life the first person who ever beat the shit out of me in my life was the first black person I met when I got to Germany uh, I was I was riding the max and this kid walks up to me black kid and you know for the first time in my life my heart kind of jumped at seeing a black person as opposed to a white person because like i said i grew up in a very multicultural environment um and uh it was the first time i was like oh god like a young brown-skinned person like this this could be a good moment right yeah so he comes up to me and he starts talking to me i don't understand german so I just kind of made some like, hey, I don't understand you motions or whatever, like, sorry. And at the time, I had no idea what was going on in his mind. But now, <laughs> probably he was probably like, what the hell, little light-skinned ass mother? What do you think, you're better than me? You can't talk to me? Mm-hmm. I don't know what he was saying, but those are the hand motions he started making. How much older and, was he? Huh? How much older was he? Maybe like a year older than me. Oh, okay. So if I was seven, he was maybe eight. Okay. And uh, and so we start, and he's still trying to talk to me, and I'm just like, hey, man, I don't understand you. And he just gave me this look like, wow. And I got off the tram and started walking to my school, and he was following me, and he was talking to me the whole time. And at some point, I started to realize, like, this isn't going well. Like, something not good. And then he just picked up a big stick and just started beating the shit out of me in the street. And the craziest fucking part was fucking German grown people, grown ups are walking past two kids with backpacks on their backs, obviously walking to school. One of them is thrashing the other 
with a big stick and no one stopped. No one even looked in our direction. (laughs) And that shit happened, then proceeded to happen for I don't know how many weeks. Like, he just kicked the shit out of me every time um, I saw him on my way to school. And uh, my mother finally got wind of it. And she was like, what the fuck? Like, you know, uh, are you, I mean, she didn't say that, but she was just like, you know, you can't let this kid beat on you. Um, you got to stand up for yourself. Uh, she's like, you know, you got an umbrella. He hits you, hit him back. And I was looking at her like, you don't know this kid. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea, but I was like, whatever. My mom told me to do it. I'm going to do it. So the next time I see him, he's got a big stick. He takes a good couple cracks at me and I turn around and I, jammed the end of my umbrella into his sternum and it stopped him for a second he like he like oh like staggered back mm-hmm. and then when his when his eyes popped back up i knew i fucked up <laughs> 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 he just i i don't even remember the beating he just fucking wailed on me uh and then my mother realized that his mother worked at the opera house that my father worked at in the dance department because she put two and two together and was like this is, these are literally the only two black people we've seen, like only two people of African descent that we've seen in Germany since we moved here. She's like, this can't be a coincidence. She's got to work. Because all the other, all, so many of the other, uh, so many other people we knew that were races that weren't common other races to be there, Turkish or, or Bosnian or something, were almost all involved in theater somehow. So she goes into and then my mom was always she was this, this kind of mom she goes into the she didn't tell me she was going to do it she goes into her house and she goes into where this woman's dancing and she goes oh hi she's like you must be so and so it's like oh yeah it's like, oh you know um my husband uh jake gardner he sings here at the at the opera she said oh yes you know oh, i heard him do don giovanni or whatever that was great she said yes my mom said you know our sons go to school together and she's like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. She's like, Brees, right? That's your son's name, Brees. And she's like, oh, yeah. And she said, yeah. She said, I just have to tell you, if your son ever touches my son again, <laughs> you will be hearing from me, and it will not be as pleasant a conversation as the one we're having now. I promise you. It's something mm-hmm. to that effect. Right. And then he never fucked with me again. But, like, but that was, but, but there was, like, so many lessons learned over the course of that series of weeks of, of him bullying me that I didn't even learn, couldn't even learn until way later on because I was stuck in Europe for so long and I had no concept really being mixed race and having a white dad. Like there is a certain level of privilege that you experience that, mm-hmm. that like, and I didn't really, you know, uh, it took so long to be able to process that shit because i was like why the fuck did that kid light me up like that like i just said you know what, and then, is, what do you think it was what was the what was his big beef that I, that I think that he saw the first african descent person that he'd seen since he moved there and he tried to make a connection and that person poo-pooed him and was a light-skinned american whatever thinks you're better than me motherfucker and that probably broke him a little bit mm-hmm you know what I mean? But that he didn't. But he didn't know that I just didn't speak the language. He didn't know I just got there. There's no way for us to have that conversation <laughs> right. yeah. because of the language barrier. So it was, you know, 
Rivers. And it's, I, 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 I ask myself so many questions. I, when I, after being in school in Germany for three years, so from age seven to eight, so seven, eight, nine, I was in school in Germany. Uh, I ended up being sent to boarding school in England, partially because I had started to have, to get into situations my parents didn't know how to control. Like, uh, when I was nine, like a 13-year-old skinhead beat the shit out of me on the, on the train. I mean, I, we had a fight. I did pretty good, but he was 13 and I was nine, and he fly kicked me in the head like Bruce Lee, and I didn't know how to deal with that at that age. So, <laughs> um, if you would. So, I, uh, yeah. So, they were like, you know what? We don't, we don't know what's going on. Like, we don't know if we can handle this. Both of them, my mom was gone most of the time. My dad was working. They're like, he needs to be in one place. It would be great if he could be somewhere he could speak his own language and like yada, 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 yada. A lot of justifications, a lot of justifications. At any rate, I ended up going to boarding school in England at age 10. And um, the second African kid I met, black kid I met, like really in Europe, was the first gave me my first black eye. <laughs> wow. Um, this kid, Alfred Sombo, who was Zambian. Now, I, again, n- no fucking idea what I'm walking into here. Like, what we had researched was what people had told us and other folks that my dad had met in England who we'd stayed with who we very amicable would have told him that, you know, the father had gone to this school, both their kids had gone to this school, that it was a great place and that, you know, and they seemed very very well adjusted and, and happy and so it's like yeah sure this is and people are clamoring to get their kids into these kind of schools so my parents are like you know maybe this is a good option and they'll get a great education yada 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 and and so anyway i go to school meet this kid alfred like my first i i spent so much time around adults because we'd always been traveling so i wasn't really used to being around kids all the time a lot and even a lot of the kids that i got along with when i was younger were kids that were you know a little less rambunctious a little more uh, i don't know what the right word is but they just not mature but just not in not just so fired up all the time yeah and um these kids, some of them had already been in boarding school for a couple of years, so they'd already been separated from their parents from a younger age. The first time the headmaster put us in, I, by the way, when I got left at school, like I broke down, like I did not do good. I cried for two fucking months, pretty much, just straight. <laughs> and every time, like the first two years of going back to school, every single time was brutal. Every single time was just like don't want to leave my parents, don't want to go fucking back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually that feeling goes away, which is another whole kettle of fish. Um, but uh, this this kid, the, the first night that the, that, the, that the headmaster turned the lights off and walked out, so my, my first boarding school room was eight kids. So it was two, it was four beds and then two bunk beds. Um, and, or, or no, sorry, three bunk beds and two beds. Or three, there was a lot of kids in this room. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the headmaster turned the light off, you know, I, I can't remember if we had to say a little prayer before he let the room. He's like, you know, and he's like, all right, good night, boys. He's like, good night, sir. And he turns the light off, and he walks out. 
and then just fucking bedlam. I mean, like madness. Like kids are jumping on their beds, kids are running across beds. Alfred Sumbo, tiny little African boy from Zambia, just jumps in the middle of the fucking room, bare ass naked with a big vaseline up cock, and just goes, ah, ah, and just shaking his dick around. I'm like, where the fuck am I? <laughs> Why have I been sent here? This is insanity. Kids are just fucking like, I, mean, I don't know. It was, it was just madness. So, but that poor fucking kid, uh, I didn't really, you know, again, I didn't realize, you don't realize all these things when you're young. But he just got shit on all the time. Him and his cousin, Charles. Uh, Alfred and Charles came from Zambia. And from what I get, I, he would tell us stories about his dad. And I would be like, ah, these sound made up. But then after I was in the boarding school system for a while longer, I was like, yeah, maybe this are made up. But he would talk about how his dad was a very, he's like, my dad is a very aggressive violent, scary man, and people are scared of him. That's the way he put it. <laughs> and he had a lot to do with weapons <laughs> and fighting people. And and he had, they had this guy who looked after them and who, and their dad put him up in London. And it's like a shitty little flat. Uncle Willie. And they fucking hated Uncle Willie because Uncle Willie was like the equivalent of like a super super country ass motherfucker. Like, 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 not, like one day they're like, our, like our father gives us so much money every week to spend for ourselves. But when we go to Uncle Willie, he always takes our money. <laughs> Last time he made us spend our entire allowance on a video cassette, and then spend two hours trying to figure out how to make a video cassette play without a video cassette player. <laughs> like, like, this is this kid's life, but he, he asked me one day, he asked me one day, he says, Quinton, do you think I am a good boy? Now, I'm a black American kid. If, a, if another black kid asks me if I think they're a good boy, my natural response would be like, no, man, you bad, man, you bad motherfucker. You know, I'm not going to call another a, a good boy. We just don't have that terminology, really, yeah. in America in the same way that over there at the time. But I said, no, man, you bad motherfucker. And he, he, I swear to fucking God, he made this sound. He goes, <laughs> and then just clocked me right in my eye <laughs> as hard as he could. <laughs> and I just went. So I and I was just like I literally just like what the why why and I instantly went and told a teacher what had happened because I was just like no I'm squealing on this one mm -hmm. this doesn't make any fucking sense to me and I can't be living in a room with a dude who's gonna punch me for <laughs> just trying you know so and I had no idea why he was acting out like this I had no idea why he was so pissed off all the time but. I started to realize that he had friends amongst the like more popular kids, kind of the troublemakers, uh, and they got like he got specifically really close to this one kid, Robert Campbell. He got they got really close, and I could tell that there were times when he finally felt like he fucking fit in a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, which is tough. And he, and he, and he it's like so many things when you're when you're 
brown skin, you kind of have to work doubly hard at some things. Right. He works doubly hard at trying to be liked by these kids. And then there was this one day, I can't remember what the deal was, what why they got into an argument. I just think Robert was just being a prick, and Alfred got mad, and they started kind of wrestling around. But I just remember, like, him just, like, like burying that, like, rubbing that kid's face in the dirt and, like, kicking dirt on him and just kind of, like, like, he might have like, spit on him, I felt like. And then, like, only a couple weeks later, this other kid, who I'm still friends with, and it's like, we're, we're, we went to, we were in boarding school from a very young age, from age 10, and he ended up coming to my secondary school. So we were in boarding school together for almost eight years. Um, so we have a lot of history. But I will never forget, we were like nine years old, 10 years old, or sorry, 10, 11 years old in the computer center. And I can't remember what Alfred said. It wasn't that big a deal. He was just, he was just like ribbing, ribbing Frank a little bit, and Frank, I remember he said, oh, shut up, Alfred, you black dog. And he said it just oh, like God. that. I was like, what the fuck? And he got reprimanded by the teacher. Like the teacher said, like, you know, Francis Tolkien, you know, use that kind of language or whatever. But I remember looking at Alfred and just seeing the, 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 the like how crushed he was by that. And I that was something that was tangible to me. Like, I could understand that. Right. I was fucking horrified. And I, you know, it's funny because if a kid went home and told their parents that shit now, like I was in the computer lab and another kid called the only other black kid in my class a black dog to his face and all that happened was he got scolded. Yeah. They pulled you out of the fucking school so fucking fast, their heads would spin. But, but then it was like, well, you know, cultural, blah, 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 blah. And, um, yeah, it's really, it's that whole, that first three years of being in boarding school, my first boarding school, I, I really learned, because I had a, I had an experience with this kid who was a really, was like one of my best friends, this kid, Tom Dowdle, he was like, he was, he was like a god, even at that age, it was a crazy thing to say, but he, at, at age 12, he was like chiseled, like cut, fucking dude, ridiculous like Clark Kent hairstyle he played he was the captain of the rugby team he played soccer he was he his his batting average in cricket was infinity because he just kept retiring like, he just hadn't gotten out all season his batting average was infinity he played the clarinet he was an amazing visual artist he was a theater actor he he, he was he was fucking James Bond <laughs> he yeah. was miraculous person um and he and i were very close we 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 hung out all the time we did plays together we played an orchestra together we played sports together we all kind of made we were really close and i can't remember what it was about but there was one night when i remember that he just completely sided against me for no good reason with every with all the other white kids <laughs> and like and even though he and i were supposed to be like you know like having an ivory or whatever and i was just like dude like that was the first time i really realized like it doesn't no matter how much you tr no matter how much you try and even though there may be some people who do really get it and get you and get that you are actually all the same and that you're all one and that there is such a thing as racial superiority like but, the, but at the end of the day, like, you're not a them. Like, you are other. 
you were always going to be a part. And um, the really brutal part, of the, the most brutal part of that was realization was coming back to America after being in Europe for 11 years. I was supposed to be there for two years. I was there for 11 years. And all I, and my only thought in my mind was go back to the States, go back to this, because that's the mantra I've been saying to myself since I was seven years old, but I didn't really yeah. think about it. Because when I got back here, all I knew about America was propaganda, really. And my own idyllic, you know, memories of my childhood, which are probably colored through rose-tinted glasses of just like the lifestyle that we lived back then. Yeah. And um, coming back to America was like, uh, it was nightmarish in a sense that like, you know, when you have a, a dream about a place and you recognize the place, but it's all different. <laughs> it's right. all different and sinister. It's like a Twilight Zone mystery. episode. It's there. Huh? It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Exactly. Oh, you want to know an interesting fun fact? Uh, Rod Serling, the creator of the Twilight Zone, is from Binghamton. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and it is. And it's like the fucking Twilight Zone. There. Like, it's a weird little place. It's in a valley that is almost like you could drive through New York state in pure sunshine for hours and hit Binghamton. And there's just a rim of clouds over <laughs> just like a perfect circular, like rim of darkness <laughs> over that place. And like scientists have claimed that there's a, like a weird energy vortex from there. Spiritualists believe it has this weird, but then, it's also just like this random little shithole that nobody knows about. Really odd. But Rod Sterling, he's from Syracuse originally, which is about an hour away, but he grew up in Binghamton. He went to Binghamton High School. There's a plaque to him, like, out on the, in front of the school and everything. Um, but yes, it, it was like a Twilight Zone episode. And this, and that, and that I, I spent all this, the last however many years being educated essentially in the belly of the beast, like educated, like being handed the tr like true shit by rich fucking assholes who keep knowledge for themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the, the fundamental difference I'd say between how uh, public and private schools are taught, at least in England. And at least how, like, what I can tell from how public school is here is that in public school, they teach you how to regurgitate and how to, to regurgitate facts and how to pass tests. And that's it. And in private school, they teach you how to identify bias and recognize it. They teach you how to think for yourself. They teach you to question absolutely everything anyone says to you because they might have an ulterior motive and you don't know what their purposes are. They, it's a totally different and just that slight difference is like the, it's like it's, a, it's, 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 it's criminal actually <laughs> really um, and when I came back and saw what was going on with American propaganda the American propaganda machine which I was just, I remember writing to a friend of mine after being here for about back here for about five or six months and saying the American, this American propaganda machine 
would make Joseph Goebbels cream in his pants. Like he would, he the, the, the Nazi Germany, Stalin, like these people cannot conceive of the level of insidiousness that is present in every moment, every day of Americans' lives. Like it's fucking bonkers. And what's weird is when you're gone from a place for a long time and you come back, it's almost like, it's almost like when you've lived with your parents your whole life and then you go somewhere else and you don't see them for a few years and then you see them again with fresh eyes and you're like, oh, these people are crazy. Um, <laughs> like, it's like that kind of, you have that kind of, like I've been gone from America for so long and I've been indoctrinated into a whole different I, you know, way of thinking and a whole different, you know, little things like commercials in England are different. They're equally stupid and weird, but they're different stupid and weird. And you get lulled in, you get used to your particular stupid weird shit that you see every day that's become normalized that you don't think about. But when you go somewhere else and you see it through, you know, sort of neutral eyes, you just go, what the hell is going on here? Like the first thing I noticed was that every time a commercial came on, the energy levels were like Sunday, 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 like that kind of thing. Like we're we're doing a crazy closeout sale. Everything's got to go. We're closing out. You're gonna do a sale. Blah 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 blah. Like it was just like this is not this is fucking crazy. Like no one's that excited or happy all the time. But this was like, and I noticed that it wasn't just that though. It was like you know you go to the store, everyone's smiling, everyone's trying to like put on their customer service face. Have a nice day. Like nobody fucking says that shit. Right. <laughs> and like these little things where you're just like, this place is kind of different. Um, and you know, not to say that other places are any better. <laughs> Trust me. Most places these days in this world are pretty equally fucked in their own peculiar ways. Ours is just like really big and gross and in everybody's face right now. But like the, um, Oh, jeez, I'm just going to feel like I've just been exploding with words. Um, well, let's do this. we got about 10 minutes left here. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about the band a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. <clears throat> but um, what do you think? About, do you think that uh, this is not about the band at all? The, do no. you think the country is is better about race or is it is it worse than ever? Uh, okay. From your so, own eyes. So from, it's that... I, both we're we're it's 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 worse in a way because we didn't we were naive before we used to think that it was a different way and enough people thinking that it's one way is enough to make it that way really so if you're always around people who are racially accepting in general like and you don't feel threatened by that you don't feel threatened by them then you're gonna feel like oh you know there's but but the issue is that like, there, there are underlying factors and issues that have always been there, that have always been kind of rotten, that are now just being brought to the surface. And on top of that, we're dealing with, you know, all of this is happening staunchly in the face of the rise of, of, of neo-fascism and white supremacy, like on a global scale. So it's like, it's a really weird... It's just everything's exacerbated by the fact that we're like moving towards an incredibly dark period, or we're in an incredibly dark period. Um, what are you going to tell so, your your kid about what to expect or or uh, beware of as as they get older? Geez, 
so like you know it's tough she's my my kid is she, she and here's okay my kid is going to be a Norwegian African Chinook wasp pretty much like that's mm-hmm. that's her heritage more or less there's some other stuff thrown in it too but that's her heritage more or less and so she's gonna be all she's and she and she's probably gonna pass for white she has very light skin she has gray eyes she has her her she has reddish hair but um she's but she's definitely a black person, like I mean, to I mean, if you if you go by the one drop rule, she's got lips and a forehead, and <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but so it's going to be interesting to see. I'm curious to see how she's perceived, how she how she decides to express herself in the world, how she decides to portray herself. Um, I'm. Uh, I think I'm. I mean, it's, I, I'm kind of. I feel like on some level, you kind of have to take take things as they come. Like I don't think I want to try to pre prepare her for too much because I don't want her to feel like she's walking into a hornet's nest. But I do want her to know that the hornet's nest exists. Right. So it's like. <laughs> so it's kind of a. It's a weird balancing act. But one thing I will definitely tell her. For sure, the one thing I will tell her because I want, I want her to to tell other people who she knows who are in similar because we, she has a lot of. Uh, we're fortunate that my 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 partner's family. She has a lot of is a very multicultural family. She has a big white part of the family. She has a Native American part of the family. She has a big black part of her family. Um, so. My daughter will get to experience all of that, which is good because I, I was very separated from black people for a long time, mm-hmm. um, from from black Americans at least, um, and so I there's there, as much as it kills me to say it, like there's just parts of that culture and that society that I will never be able to really access, or never really be able to. And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's my fears about not being accepted, or if I mean it is. And I, there's so many things that there's so many different factors that go into the relationship between mixed race black folks and black folks. But um, well, but what I will but what I will tell her for certain is this: is that no matter what anybody tells you, you are a true American. You are literally the definition of the new world. You are the result of the melting pot. You are the the only real way forward for this country that doesn't involve mass spread genocide <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and fear and terror like people who we need to get to a point where no one has a dog in the race race and like 
this shit that we're going through now, this fucking diabolical ice fucking shit, this Nazi fucking diabolical fucking shit that we are all culpably a part of at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even a new thing. Right. You know, Ellis, you watch any documentary about Ellis Island, read about Ellis Island, read about the history of American eugenics. I mean, we, we, gave Hitler the fucking idea and American oil uh, standard oil uh, paid to help to pay to pave to, 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 to put the rails up to fucking Auschwitz and other concentration camps so like we're this is not a new thing right we, there was a period in our history where openly you can read it in the papers it's not like it was a, a secret they were trying to create a great white Nordic race of Americans in America. And they they were excited about the English coming over, excited about the Germans coming over, the Norwegians, but they didn't want the Italians, they didn't want the Irish, they didn't want the Chinese, you know, like, the same fucking bullshit, the same petty, and, but the, but the hope is, the, the good part is, you know, that shit all happened, but it didn't last. Mm-hmm. You know, and and now it's the, the the demographics in this country are so are so vastly different than they were. You know, the those those particular folks' worst nightmare is coming true. But what's un, what's so sad is that they don't realize that it's like you know, it's, it's, we we could be Constantinople, but we act like it's you know. Like multiculturalism is the end of the world, but like when we, historically, if you look back and you look at times where different races of people coexisted peacefully and traded in art and traded in culture and traded in, uh, uh, you know, just in life, and just 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 being around people of different cultures, different backgrounds, and different outlooks. All of that shit expands your mind. That's why I think the government doesn't like it. That's why I think there's like like because people want to stay trapped in this very narrow mindset. The same fucking mindset that won't let people admit that climate change is real. Right. Like, you know, and and I get it, change is scary and it's rough and it's sometimes and it's nobody really likes it, but like uh the fact that people are willing to choose violence and hatred and loathing over the possibility of unity is is really I mean that's a whole nother that's a whole nother episode because I, I really I, again I think that goes I think it goes back to education which is something that we're just trying to absolutely decimate in this country we're just leveling it. we're just mm-hmm. crushing education and it's so I don't want to be like it's so obvious it's so obvious what's going on here but because there's no fucking education and nobody's learning their history nobody can identify these things because the history books are outdated and bought by teachers who don't have any money and it's like it's just it's <laughs> like it's just a, it's just a it's a whirlwind and it's and it's all deliberate <laughs> it's like, anyway 
Well, we got about we got about a minute left. Um, do, do you want to do a part two about? Uh, I'm very intrigued about Full Metal Jackson because I'm a oh, big, yeah, big Michael Jackson fan. I'd love to hear how that all started and how you went yeah. from uh, opera soloist parents to a, a metal. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like an incredible journey. Do, do you want to do another one of these? Uh, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Uh, I really appreciate your time, man, in uh, rearranging your schedule to be on with me. Yeah, I appreciate you asking me to be on. And, uh, I'm I'm sorry it was such a just like bizarre stream of consciousness kind of rant, but you know, no one's no one's really asked me a lot of these questions before, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like they're like they've just been like at the top of my skull just trying to burst out <laughs> yeah just trying to push it all down so thank you for giving me an opportunity to just get some of this shit off my chest absolutely okay we're back quentin gardner part two quentin how you doing man i'm good how you doing real good so uh the first uh hour we didn't get too much into the band Full Metal Jackson, uh, so I was hoping we could uh, get a, a a good look at that because the idea is very fascinating to me and uh, the 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 heavy metal. If I'm understanding it right, the heavy metal Michael Jackson cover band. Yes, that's correct. It's a, I uh, I like to I like to think of it as a. a ultimate tribute band in a way because we're doing we're doing all Michael Jackson songs uh, which is more in the style of a tribute band but then we're also doing them in the style of different subgenres and different uh, uh, popular uh, classic metal bands um, and just basically it was it basically started as an idea for I, I had been in another group for about nine years uh, uh extreme like death metal band uh called only soul we we uh it was like very very um very very aggressive music very very heavy very sort of disjointed and lots of different time signature changes and key changes and just very kind of crazy all over the place but it's a very uh sort of narrow market which is didn't really bother me because that's those like all I really wanted to do, but after doing, after playing like extreme metal almost exclusively for the better part of like almost 15 years, I think I was just like, you know, I, 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 I kind of wanted to stretch my, uh, creative muscles in, in different directions. And I still wanted to, I, I spent so much time here building up a network in the metal scene. I felt like it was kind of, uh, totally uh not in my best interest to step completely out of that world but i also was just like i would like to be able to 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 play some different uh, play through some different emotions uh not just like you know anger and resentment and 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 hatred and (laughs) all the time so uh uh, I just, I had actually was talking to a, a friend of mine I used to work with, and he mentioned one day that he thought that that would be a cool idea, heavy metal, Michael Jackson tribute band, and I said, yeah, well, the, you know, I was like, I've thought about it, I've definitely considered it, but I just, I, 
there's too many little things. It's, I guess, a lot of that music's really hard to make uh, sound heavy and dark because it's I was like, take take ABC, for example. Right. You know, it's a Jackson 5 song, but I'm like, I, I do think there's absolutely no way you could possibly take such a bouncy, happy, upbeat tune, like everything about it, the rhythm, the, the, the choice of the notes, it's just like so not evil sounding. I don't know how you could make it into metal. Um, but as I was having this conversation with him, my brain uh, just sort of, we were, we were talking about Smooth Criminal, the, uh, the Alien Ant Farm uh, rendition that they did. I don't know how many years ago, in like the early aughts. This one hit wonder, Alien Ant Farm did a cover of uh, Smooth, Criminal, uh, Smooth Criminal, and it was pretty terrible. Uh, as I recall, and um, I just remember being like, if anyone was going to do this project, the first thing they'd have to do is figure out how to fix that mistake. Like, you'd have to be able to do Smooth Criminal metal style and make it cool. And as I was thinking, talking about that, it just it sort of started to creep into my head, this, this, this line from, uh, the main line from uh, Smooth Criminal, and I was the main bass line, and I sort of, my brain started, deconstructing it and figuring out a way to play it uh, in a totally different fashion. It, it just happened to, be, happened to sound like Viking metal in my head, like I'm on a Marth. And I was like, you know, I said, and as we're talking, I said, hold on. I said, let me get back to you in a week. I said, I think I might have an idea <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that we've kind of talked about it. And so then a week later, I was like, I think I might actually have an idea for a cool sounding version of a smooth criminal. And then it just kind of went from there. I just kept listening to more Michael Jackson songs and as I would listen to them eventually like I would hear some part of a hook or some part of a riff that I was like I just I'd make a connection like ooh that sounds like something you know so and so would do that sounds like something uh, you know Kiss would play or that sounds mm-hmm. like something that, that Motorhead would play and then I would just kind of run with it from there and then you know fast forward to now and uh, we're not we're not releasing whole albums like i said we're not we're not trying to make any money off the off the recordings or anything like that yet because we don't know what our what our rights are but um uh but we've i've got you know probably two albums worth of music in my head and like a quarter of that's you know written and like most of that's recorded and it's just we're just kind of slowly slowly working our way towards, uh, you know, just having a, a, a larger catalog of songs to draw from. But um, the, the first, been, no, go ahead. The first music that I ever noticed, you know, sort of independently was Michael Jackson. And then after that, it was the Chili Peppers. And then after that, it was Run DMC. So um, is it, was, was choosing Michael coming from a place of being a fan or was it just uh was it like kind of tongue-in-cheek yeah no, well it's interesting like i uh so when i was a kid um i i, I think we talked about it on the last podcast but my parents uh, opera singers so right i grew up in a weird situation where they they had already kind of had their childhood music thing and then had found this opera thing and then after finding opera I kind of reevaluated some of their other music, 
stuff. And they're also, they're at that weird age where they're in their 30s, 40s, and like, you know, trying to find new music that spoke to them at the time. So like, you know, my, my dad, when he was growing up, he was listening to cool music like Jimi Hendrix and Jefferson Airplane and The Who and Ian Zeppelin. And then by the time I came around, he was listening to like Bobby McFerrin and Al Jarreau from like Alabama. Like, wow. really, really not that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I just had a lot of really interesting musical influences in my life. My mom always kind of held on to the music from her youth, like, but but she also listened to a lot of like, she was really into Whitney Houston and Tina Turner, and she always loved Diana Ross. So like, I had a lot of that, those influences plus the opera stuff going on in my life, and then like Michael Jackson was obviously he was just around, and eventually I saw. Michael Jackson and it was just like a totally different thing. I was like, you know, it's like there's all these other people and they're pretty good. Like they're, they're talented and stuff. But I'm like, this guy is something else. Like this is like a, a, a next, some next level shit. And when you're right. a kid and there's someone who can do that, you just are like, oh, okay. So like people can do that. But it's like, no, people can't do that. Right. <laughs> like, that, that guy can do that. And I was definitely, it was the first thing that I, latched onto of my own volition that nobody nobody pushed it on me i was like i like that music i want to hear more of that and so and and what's really interesting is and i've talked to a lot of uh a lot of metal fans uh and other metal musicians specifically who um have some kind who where michael was some in some way formative of their or or uh leading for the way you know the way their musical path progressed. And uh, I think that working with artists like Eddie Van Halen, uh, Jennifer Batten, um, some of the other, uh, Slash, I mean, he, he worked with a lot of uh, different fantastic heavy metal and, and, and just great guitar players, lead guitarists. And, um, and there was all, you know, the thriller video was pretty gnarly. Like Vincent Price was in it. Just all it's funny, all those little things that you don't think about. And then but then you would there there are definitely similarities between that music and the music and heavy metal, which was the next thing that I kinda got into of my own volition. Because they we had them when I was seven, we moved to Germany. Um, my dad got a, a contract to sing with the Cologne Opera House. And it was supposed to be just like a two year thing. We ended up being there for eight years. And um the uh my parents had a lot of guilt about taking a mixed race kid from New York State to a, a place that they didn't know what to expect, but just to Germany. And I, I I uh had kind of a rough time of it there for a bit. So like to put it this way, I had a lot of uh I had a lot of Nintendo games <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, call it like action figures and shit. And, um, my, uh, sorry, I just realized I left something So, uh, I, uh, I, one of the other things that, that I had to keep me occupied because also a lot, I was, um, I'd be after school was like very short when I was a kid in Germany. I'd be good there at 8.15 in the morning. I'd come out of summer school. We'd be done by like 11.30 in the morning, noon, most of the time. 
So you'd only be there for a few hours, and then you'd be home and catch a bit work. So I had a cable, um, and which was kind of a big deal in Germany. Like, most people in Germany didn't have cable at the time, I feel like. Uh, it's kind of a luxury item. But being Americans, we were like, we need TV. Um, and the only way you could get any channels that were in English was if you had cable. And one of the channels we got was MTV. So uh, in 89, when we moved there, like I could probably, I can name so many different singles from that year just because that was the first time I saw music videos. And uh, one of the ones that really stuck out to me early on was uh, Trash by Alice Cooper. Like that record. Um, the first video I saw was Poison. Uh, the Poison video, and it's like, just like, like, shirtless dude on a scaffolding with a giant scarf playing the guitar, and I don't know why, what that's, what that's, why that spoke to me as a kid, but maybe it was just the theatrics of it, but that, and then cut to, you know, and then there's the guitar solo, and then cut to Alice, and he's all painted up like a dead crack car on Christmas, right. whipping himself with the, with the whip, and I was just like, I like this, this is cool, and so, uh, it's a we. It's kind of weird, and I. But I still was. I was still into Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, and as I was getting into all this other music, and then you know, the first uh, the first set of allegations came out uh, against him, and I remember just being like, I remember even at that age, being like, "Holy crap!" Like I don't think it matters whether he did it or not. Like this is really gonna taint all of this right. like possibly forever and I just remember being like this is like like having so many emotions about it but basically just being like I'll shut <laughs> you know what I mean I'm like not way in and I'm young and I don't know anything about anything all I know is they're accusing him of some crazy ass shit now I feel like I can't listen to Michael Jackson's music anymore um, but what was crazy what was interesting about it was I, even at that age I felt like you know, it's such a weird thing uh, for someone on that kind of level to be accused of because, you know, if they're that famous, like they're going to have the money and the power and the influence to try to squash whatever allegations are coming against them. At the same time, like, how hard, it's going to be so much harder to quell any rumors or any feelings about it, whether it's true or not. And, like, we'll never know. And, like, I, even at that age, I just remember being like, holy shit, like something that was just so purely awesome in my life is now somehow tainted and there's nothing to be done about it. Well, I, I was defending Michael Jackson before any of that even came out. I mean, it was, yeah. especially where I grew up in this town in, on the Oregon coast, which was a pretty small kind of logging town. Like, oh, yeah. That was not the, he was not the artist to like. You know, that's kind of, you know, Hank Williams Jr. country down there, which is fine. But, you know, it just, there was just, and so when that came out, that I think solidified a lot of what people thought of him already. And it went beyond him, beyond being just kind of a weird, eccentric, you know, millionaire. Right. Now now he's, now he's, now he's the lowest form of criminal. Right. All of a sudden, it would be a better convicted or not. Um, But it's... God, it's 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 interesting because like um, where I went to school, where I went to school, uh, totally different scenario, but uh, you know, British boarding school, uh, it was kind of the same thing, but but it was like it was it, it was different because it was like 
grunge and stuff like like when i went to prep school i was cut off from music for three like the better part of three years i ended up like sneaking a cd player and eventually but we were only allowed to listen to like religious music and like you know whatever music music that was sanctioned by by the school body essentially um and so when i got to secondary school it was like oh all these kids were, were still listening to grunge which is already kind of on the outs Mm-hmm. but just the fact that Michael had like a clean sounding voice with no grit in it was enough for no one to want to like have anything to do with him. And there was definitely like, there was definitely an overbearing sense of like, like uh machismo that like there had to be like, like male singers had to sound like men <laughs> like mm-hmm. kind of vibe going on then. Uh, and it was just a really weird it, it was like again it, it's kind of the same thing where it was just like uh they already kind of he already kind of wasn't on their radar and it, it, i could tell early on it was just like yeah and i had, I had already kind of accepted that people were going to have their opinions and snap judgments and whatever and like you know and that's and that and that there's and that there's no evidence to stand against that yet so it's just like what do you do but uh but when it came when this what's interesting about that is when this all came around again like you know fast forward however many years and a lot of that controversy had died down people had kind of made up their minds how they felt about michael one way or the other but i feel like his like his music had sort of been given a pass again like people were listening again and enjoying again and it's and it's not just michael's music it's also quincy jones's music it's fantastic music it's amazing and um and i remember when he passed i remember people being genuinely upset and i remember people being like you know and like i could hear his music all across the country you hear michael coming out of every Mm -hmm. business and every you know and and every few years it's you know so anyway i i my last band dissolved and i was like you know what i want to do I spent so much time trying to make art that's about like expressing who I am deep inside or some shit. I don't know, like about, you know, or like expressing, you know, what's, what, you know, how I feel about the world or how I see shit. And I was like, you know what? Forget all that. I was like, I want to, I want to go back to basics. I just want to do something that's just pure entertainment. Mm-hmm. I was like, what's more fucking entertaining than Michael Jackson? Right. Nothing. Nothing in the world. So I was like, I was like, I just want to go for, and, and go from that perspective. I was like, my two favorite things in the music growing up as a kid, Michael Jackson, heavy metal. I'm going to put them together, put on a show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Everything was going really good. We were like, just like ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. Had our first single done. It sounded great. Super excited to release it the same month. I swear to God, the week I was going to release it, we f- I found out that the documentary was coming out. The new yeah, one, Baby yeah, Neverland. Yeah. And I was just like, you got and then i was also so i was like okay so it's a double way i mean number one i feel like now i gotta decide whether or not i want to sit on this you know do i want to do i want to wait do i want to wait a couple months to release this do i want to wait years like do i want to decide i put so much into this at this point and uh made a lot of sacrifices i was and i talked to a lot of people about it and they're like i think you just got to keep going 
And, you know, well, there's so much. This one seems to have had the biggest impact so far of. Yeah. As far as uh, the history of these allegations go, this documentary seems to. Because you know, now the episode, the Simpsons episode he was in, has been pulled. Mm-hmm. They don't play it anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This really, people. It seems like it cemented whatever opinions people had, I think. Yeah, but what's. what's and what's interesting is, like, I mean, I. It's, a, it's such a weird place for me to be in because on the one hand I you know I'm watching this I'm watching the documentary I'm going geez I'm like these guys I'm like you know why would they have any reason to make any of this up this is you know it's just it's 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 none of this sounds infeasible um you know uh I just I and but then there's I had this other voice in my head um because I go like, because I, I kept saying like, I was like, who would make this up? And then I was thinking to myself, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, people make shit like this up. You know, from personal experience, people make shit like this up. Because I had, I had, I had an interesting ex- growing up experience um, and experience with uh, with sexual assault and myself just being, um, you know, I, being in boarding school for as long as I was. At some point. Um, I was, uh, sexually molested by a teacher and, um, who was a very formative person in my life who was like, there's, was very instrumental in getting me interested in a lot of things that I'm still interested in to this day, including music, um, and theater and all kinds of things. And so like, I'm listening to their stories and I'm going, man, I really, I sympathize with everything they're saying. Um. And then at the same time, I also some of the stuff they were saying, on the other hand, I would get glimpses of this other person from my past who's uh, a girl that I was seeing in uh, secondary school. And she, uh, I, I don't know exactly what she was going through, but she had was based, had fabricated this really elaborate story um, about being raped and abused by a friend of the families and it was really intense and really insane and a lot of people got drawn into it um and uh like it, it heavily affected people's lives in her immediate sphere and then we came came to find out like some of these folks had been carrying secrets around about this for like two years plus and it came to find out it was all completely made up like down to the last detail pretty much um, and that, you know, all the physical, the physical signs of abuse she had on herself were self-inflicted, like, and like, and you know, this is an extreme case, but, um, there is her only, uh, what's the word, her only, um, uh, payoff for any of that was just to be, just to feel, um, was, was to garner pity so that people would be kind to her because people weren't, she felt like people weren't kind to her and that it was, and, and that she felt like a great, like a big time outsider. So I'm like, you know, and that's, that's a pretty, you know, when you, you weigh that sort of, um, uh, motivation against, you know, however many, many, many millions of dollars, um, that's, and you go, okay, you know, could someone make something like this up? Like, absolutely. The issue with that documentary is it's only one person's perspective. It's only their camp's perspective. And there's no, there's no control. There's no alternate production. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would say, why should you give license to 
you know, the other side to defend themselves, but it's like, I mean, Michael can't defend himself. He's dead. Right. Like, you're, you're, like, there's some, there's some part of, like, pissing on a dead man's legacy that's, like, already been dragged through the mud that's just, you go, I don't know, really. And then the other, and then if you watch, there's, you know, a lot of, uh, footage of, of, of other dispositions and, those guys, one of, at least one of them being questioned by the police and having different answers to all of these things and like not like having contrary stories to a lot of the things that are told in, and corroborated in the documentary. So it's it, it, it's it pisses me off because I'm like, if you're going to do this, like get it right, like right. and do it the right way and allow, you know, people are still going to draw like allow people to draw their conclusions and allow for there to be like allow their it just it, it invalidates their their arguments to not have any other viewpoint put forward and I, I know I'm not the only person who feels that way it's just it's by nature poor document doc, documentary making is poor journalism and now that sounds callous and shitty because it's like yeah who cares about poor journalism in the face of these guys you know the tragedy that befell them but it's I guess as someone who's been through sexual abuse themselves and as someone who's known people who have been through sexual abuse and as someone who has known people who have lied about sexual abuse I feel like there's enough doubt in my mind to where I'm like I can't side with you mm-hmm. and what sucks about that is like you know I also feel like you're trying to, like, if, if it's not true, then this is shitty what you're doing. But if it is true, then it's, sh- it's shitty that I, you know, that I don't believe you. Right. <laughs> you know? So it's just, it's, it's the, the, the whole, the way that whole thing happened, it just, I feel like they could have gone about it in a better way and and again it's like that maybe seems insensitive but it's like you're not just like if you're gonna if you're gonna kill the king like in front of everybody like get the job done like do it correctly make us see why the king was supposed to die don't just give a bunch more doubt and a bunch more division and like you know it's still I, I, I still hear Michael Jackson's music like it's not it hasn't been crushed it's never going to be eradicated well and I think that's what you know it's not really fair for anybody to make that decision because you know only a handful of people know what really went down and the rest of us we have what we've been presented right and you know and I and it's hard to it's hard to separate that I've liked Michael Jackson since I was five years old from Mm -hmm. in his music and his his videos from you know from his alleged crimes yeah Yeah, absolutely it is it is and 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 that's something I mean as soon as this like I already when when I first started this group and I invited a bunch of people to be in and I was like look you know that there could be some time down the road when like some shit pops off or whatever I think I was worried more about it like if this goes anywhere and we make any headway and something pops off, are we going to get any backlash? I didn't expect it to happen before we were even out the gate. So like, um, in a way, like 
I don't know. I, it, in a way, I almost feel like it's a positive thing for us, just because we're we're all we we walked into the into the lion's den, kind of already knowing exactly what we're dealing with, and we're you know we're at that very tenuous position of you know trying to represent and and trying to trying to show people this sort of musical experiment we've undertaken while not trying to necessarily champion or deride the artists that whose music we're performing um and that's it's a it's like a tightrope because yeah. <laughs> you, know? you you were trying to invoke the theatricality of them it's like how do you invoke the theatricality and the essence of the man without invoking the man himself right. and it's uh but you know the cool thing about it is that uh you know people realize that we're not you know we're not that and we're just we're just and a bunch of entertainers like we're just trying to make some fun cool sounding music (laughs) and uh and really like the whole but like all i wanted to do is like i just wanted to sort of show that a common thread of of energy runs through all all music really and that you know i was just talking to somebody earlier today like i feel like uh, not just in, in music and in creativity, but across the board in this country right now, I think people just need to to just like turn the scrabble board, just like just a quarter turn. Like I feel like you can. See, I feel like uh, especially now people are so reactionary and so busy looking at you know they've got their four letters left or whatever, and they're still trying to make a five letter word and they just can't see it. And it's frustrating as fuck. And it's like, I feel like that's all I was trying to do really was just sort of take the board of, of music and be like, we're all doing this, 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 this. And like, what if we just turn the board a quarter turn and look at it a slightly different way? Um, and that also was born out of not wanting to, not wanting to just be a band that just, you know, we get up on stage and we play our songs and we get off and that's, you know, you see five bands like that and then that's the end of the show. Um, like trying to, trying to figure out a way to try to re put some value back into the art form so that we can spend a little more money trying to put on a little bit more of a production, a little bit more of a spectacle and trying to sort of move performance, uh, back into a more, sustainable art form on a, on a, on an underground level because at the, at the moment it's like we've got this whole pay to play scenario that seems to be king where you know major promoters uh, will have a big name international touring act coming through and then they'll basically ask depending on who they think is a good fit and who they think can sell the most tickets, they'll ask them to come on. Then they they basically give you a bunch of tickets, and they say you have to sell this many tickets. Any tickets you don't sell, if you don't sell this many tickets, you're responsible for the money for the difference, basically. And then anything you sell over that amount of tickets is yours. But normally, most bands can't meet their ticket quota. Um, and so then what ends up happening is 
they end up putting more bands on a bill. So you could have, you could think you're open, you know, you're playing a decent slot, maybe second uh, or third out of a five band bill. And, uh, you know, you're, and then you're going on at this time, yada, yada, yada. And then there's, and then that's how many ways the money's getting split. And then you find out, well, so-and-so's band didn't sell enough tickets. Other band didn't sell enough tickets. So now they've added two more bands onto the bill. So now you've got seven bands on the bill. And the day of the show, they had one more open the doors at five o'clock in the afternoon. The show ends at midnight. No one's staying to watch, to stand around and watch music for seven hours straight. Right. So now people are just coming to see the, the bands that they want to see. So they're just coming to see one band. They're paying full price to see one band. Many people get discouraged by this whole thing. Only these don't come at all. The bar doesn't make enough money because people aren't hanging out drinking. The only people who get taken care of really are the promoters and the touring bands who and who get enough to get to the next location, and then everybody else gets the shaft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, so uh, I, I don't know if I had a chance to succeed with this in a different format, but. Um, just trying to like trying to take a little bit more of the responsibility of, of putting on the events into my own hands and um, to have more just to have more control across the board of the quality of stuff that's going on and to have control over how long the event's going to be how many acts are going to be in it to be able to set it um, and to be able to and to hopefully be able to promise people a night of quality entertainment that only runs three and a half hours, like, you know, like a a reasonable amount of time for someone to want to come and be entertained without a whole bunch of bullshit time wasting in the middle. You show up, you sit, you drink, three and a half hours, you're out the door, and you have something to talk about at the end of the night, as opposed to showing up two-thirds of the way through a show, watching one band, drinking half a shitty beer, and then being like, okay, I'm out as soon as the next band starts playing. So sounds pretty normal. Yeah, we'll see if it works. I could it could take a giant shit and I could I could be banned from Dante's and <laughs> so, and, and, and you know running out of town on a rail, but I but I I, I, I was just like I told Ronan we gotta take a chance and, and try to do something a little bit different. So I I, I, I said, you know, no seven, eight extreme metal bands on a bill. I was like, put us on. I was like, give me a couple other, I got a couple other musical acts. I got this guy, uh, Mike Sprigo, who's an old time, he's been playing in bands in Portland since the 70s. Um, and now he just does like a one man act thing. I, I've known him for years and uh, he's a great, he's a, he's a great opening act. Very interesting, very funny. Um, and I've got uh, uh a group of uh, ladies who are going to be doing a combined piece that involves like chain aerial acrobatics and uh, uh, there's a lead cellist who plays um, really crazy uh, like haunting music over like a loop pedal and effects and then I've got an uh, extreme piercing opera singer who's going to do some crazy stuff with needles and singing um, and then uh, we've got a surf rock group Instrumental surf rock uh, called uh, Neptune's Chargers, and uh, uh, and then we've also got this uh, fantastic local comic uh, Hijinx, who's going to be hosting the whole thing. 
and uh, doing a doing a twenty twenty five minute set. And uh, so it's going to be a whole bunch of different types of entertainment all in one place. Uh, and I'm hoping that it will be a night to remember. It sounds pretty good. Um, sounds like the complete package. So, uh, so, so did did metal have the same kind of uh, impact that that MJ did, or did it sort of have to grow on you a little? Yeah, it had to grow on me, but it was a very it was really different. I think in that respect, you know, Michael was something that I just I automatically gravitated towards. Um, heavy metal was something that I I liked inherently, but conflicted with my uh, religious scruples at that age. <laughs> and uh, I was a little bit worried that a lot of what they were singing about was conflicting pretty heavily with what I was doing cold about how, you know, God works in the world. And uh, But I was also at a point in my life where I was ex- starting to experience some, some serious questions uh, and doubts in myself about, you know, how the world worked and what I'd be told about how the world worked and uh, what role I was going to be playing in the world. And um, I don't know exactly when the moment was, but at some point I just decided that, you know, if the music spoke to me as much as it did, which was, on a, you know, it was very different, like, I was in a very different place when I started listening to heavy metal. And, um, it just, uh, it was, it was, it helped, it helped me at the time, like for who I was the same way. Michael was very uplifting and, and affirming, I think in a way as a young kid, like this, like heavy metal for me was affirming in a different way that like, you know, you're not crazy and there is a lot of fucked up stupid shit going on all around you and people are going to pretend like it's not the case <laughs> so it's like don't let them make you think you're nuts so it's kind of like the the kind of the, the message that i took away from it in a weird way and uh and, has, and it's the one thing i will say about heavy metal that has like stayed true to me throughout my, <laughs> throughout my life like a lot of you know you're hearing your heroes will rise and fall uh, and people come and go, and and and, the, and scenes come and go, and ideologies come and go. But like, I definitely like like if you know what you know, like stick to your guns. Don't let anybody else tell you what the world is. <laughs> That's kind of what I took away from it. And uh, and it became it became like a, it, it it became a huge. I mean. A, you know, MTV is probably partially to blame for that—the sort of the tribalistic sort of—I uh, 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 don't know what you call it—sort um, of environment that MTV built around uh, uh, being affiliated or associated with different musical genres. But um, it was like being a mixed race kid living in Germany. Um, I didn't really, it was hard to have a sense of identity. Um, nobody had any idea, I knew anything about black American people at all. So there's like no presuppositions, which is kind of nice, but it also, it's like there's also a lot of really bizarre questions and, um, you know, just a lot of, a lot of misunderstanding. And so, um, 
when I was like, I don't know, I think probably nine or ten years old, I was at a, a World of Music, which is a big, a giant um, uh, record store in Cologne, Germany, and I would I would get ten Deutschmarks a week for doing uh, chores. So that's like, you know, bed, vacuum, cleaning the toilets, that kind of stuff, dishes. 10 Deutschmarks at the end of the week, and a uh, CD cost exactly 30 Deutschmarks back then. So every three weeks, I'd be able to go buy a new record. That's all I spent money on. Uh, didn't buy candy or, or anything like that, just, just the records. Um, so I got to uh, I got the world of music, and I was looking through, fingering through some Black Sabbath albums. And I had some, some hairy interactions with some Germans at that point, so I was like, kind of on guard most of the time, but I just very, very large, uh, tall, like, like old school, like German Hesher, uh, denim jacket, long scraggly hair, like a, like a shirt tied around his waist, walks up to me and he's just like, and is get one talking to me very exuberantly and loudly in German. And I was just like, I was still, um, I think that I must have been, yeah, I must have like, like just nine. I was like, I, I understood pretty good German, but I was still like, I was still learning. And he, uh, he just, he had this crazed look in his face and I was just like, kind of shook my head and he just said, Oh, uh, uh, English. And I was like, yeah. He's like, American. And I was like, yeah. And he said, ah, he said, it's American. He's like, do you like black Sabbath? And I said, Yes, yeah, I like Black Sabbath very much. And he says, okay. He says, have you ever heard, and he pulls his shirt open, and he's wearing a Man of War t-shirt. He says, have you ever heard Man of War? And I was like, no, I've never heard of this band. And he says, Man of War is the greatest heavy metal band in all the world. Like, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> it was like straight out of a comic book. <laughs> and um, and he, said, he said, this is a good album here. And he grabs the Triumph of Steel and puts it into my hand. And he's like, you must buy this album. <laughs> and I was like, okay, man. And he just, and he said something to me in German and he clapped me on the shoulder and he went on his way. And it was the, f I didn't really realize it at the time, but it was the first kindness that a complete stranger had showed me since I got to the country. Wow. Um, and it was like, so it was this bizarre thing of like, you know, first being like afraid, like I'm about to get jumped, like I'm about to get knocked the fuck out by this gigantic person, to being like, oh no, he's cool with me, to being like he's trying to like show me about some shit. And the uh, what was interesting, what I didn't understand at the time, was um, the nature of uh, conformity in Germany and West Germany at that time, specifically, probably still to this day, um, but that anyone who stepped outside the norm, so like anyone who dressed differently, listened to different music, whatever, goth music, punk, metal, you were labeled an Uzzy, which is short for asozial, asocial. And if you're an Uzzy, that was like, a like you know, they throw it around, like kind of a throwaway, throwaway word, but there was something to it, like being... Like you were apart from, you were like a breed apart. And I remember the first time I heard the song Where Eagles Dare by the Misfits. 
And I remember saying, holy shit, that's the punk rockers in Germany, West Germany. Because when I came back to the States, I see punk rockers, I'd be like, oh, well, these kids are sort of nice and cuddly and like playful. Because <laughs> like, the kids in Germany were like literal like safety pins in their face, Liberty Spikes every day. They did not wear, they only wore black leather and chains. Um, and they were not fucking happy campers. They were not pleasant. They hated everybody, but they were okay to me, (laughs) (laughs) which was weird. They left me alone. And I started to realize that a bunch of these different groups of people that had been labeled asocial were kind of like, I mean, not all of them. You never know. (laughs) Some of them were very antisocial, but that, that they were actually, it was just, no, they just don't, they just don't conform. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, so the Germans, even the Germans can't crush the spirit of this. There's got to be something to it. You know? (laughs) So that was kind of, that, that kind of opened the floodgates for me then to just be like, screw it. I'm sort of walking down this heavy metal road and my, and my parents, uh, you know, much to their credit, just kind of let me do it. I don't think my mom was very into it. I remember when my dad bought, that first Alice Cooper record for me and like he read the lyrics in front of me and it was just like he's like hmm like I like this lyric here where he says you're such a high class tramp but when you hit the sheets you just turn to trash and I was like yeah I mean and he's like what do you even know what this means <laughs> it's not really about that for me man it's just like the overall feel and the music and he was like He's like, all right. I was like, I may regret this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go with it because I feel like if I try to hide it from you, it's just gonna make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of that, and then, and uh, it's funny because I think they just thought it was gonna be a phase, you know, uh, like he'll grow out of it and he'll he'll find some other thing. Um, and I and I I it's, I did I went through other phases with music and with identity and stuff but somewhere along the line like i don't know what it was that i was just like no this is me like <laughs> like i'm i'm this this music this vibration somehow is direct indirect correlation with my being because i feel like if you're like you're kind of like into heavy metal or you're not like there's not a like there's some people who are like oh yeah i like some metal stuff but they don't really like they yeah. can stand, they can stand to listen to it, but they're not, they're not recognizing songs, you know. Um, so was so there I ever, should, was there ever a pull to uh, produce or even listen to more traditional, uh, I don't know, black music like hip hop or funk or blues or? Oh that... sure, yeah. I mean, I, 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 so when I was like, when I was like fourteen years old, I'd been in Europe for six years and I got to go back to the States on my own for the first time. I was 14. I went back to my hometown and I met up with a bunch of kids I hadn't seen in years and years and years and years, like since kindergarten, first grade. And they were all, all, all my friends growing up in Binghamton were almost all black. And they were really into like my buddy Andre, uh, he introduced me to, uh, the Onyx, and they introduced me to Biggie Smalls, and they introduced me to EDP, uh, uh, just like a bunch of different like New York hip-hop stuff. 
And then back in in England, like the Fugees had just kind of made a splash in Europe, so like hip hop was starting to come into the mainstream a little more. And um, uh, and then I had one friend in school who was who was like savvy, who had like he had some cousins in the states, and he had been hanging out with them, and they had exposed him to like all kinds of Ice Cube and P. Diddy and whatever else was going on. But I guess he was so Puff Daddy back then. Um, and uh, so he just had, he had some some stuff. And then I started getting a hold of some records. And we figured out that our buddy Neil used to have kind of a hip-hop bug, which was weird because he was like the Scottish, it's like this one Scottish kid who just happened to be really, and who had like, this kid had like only built for Cuban links when he was like 14 years old. Yeah, that's tight. Right so I was like, where the hell did you get this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I still, he gave me that copy of Only Bill Kim Link that I still have today. Um, and, Raekwon, uh, for those for those wondering what he's talking about, that's an album yes. by Raekwon the Chef. With the yes, indeed. My, personally, my favorite solo Wu-Tang record uh, of, of all time. I know most people prefer Liquid Swords, and then you have your... Uh, you know, uh, your fans who love the, the first ODB record, but it's for Iron me, Man. Iron Man for me. See, that's, that's, that's fine for me. It's, there's just nothing darker, grittier, just like, just like, Oh, it's just like, I can, you can just, you can taste the street on only built for Cuban links. It's amazing. It <laughs> I love that record. Um, but yeah, so I like, they just like infected me. But the Onyx and Biggie really got under my skin. And Bone. And Bone doesn't Onyx. I forgot oh, about yes. Bone. Love Bone. It just really got under my skin. And so then I went back to Germany and was like, they do have, it did have that stuff available. So then I started buying hip-hop records. Well, then when I go to the States, I was working summer jobs, but I was, like, living with my aunts. And, like, I was I was just, I was just clowning. Because in, in England, people had really gotten into brand-name clothes and shit. But they didn't have anything like TJ Maxx out there. So I would go to TJ Maxx and just buy up like tons of like slightly defective name brand clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and like tons of CDs. And that's all I would spend my money on is clothes and CDs. And I would go back to England just like flossing. People would be like, oh my God, <laughs> like how can you afford to wear all this stuff? Yeah. Um, but it was interesting was once I st- like, I did like, I really the only reason I really had a connection to the black community in Binghamton was because I grew from there and I grew up there. Um, and, but when I would go back, like I was, I was like, I know, like, I'm not like, I'm still a little removed. Like yeah. a little, I'm pretty square compared to these kids. So I was like, but I wanted, I wanted to hang out. I wanted to be involved and they got into some crazy shit and they were having, they were having some times. I was like, I got, I was like, I got it. I got to appreciate my students. So I, I, was just like I was. I was always buying music, and one day I just happened to be in my friend's house, and I had the whole CD binder with me. And they were like, "Oh, what do we listen to? What do we listen to?" And they were like, "Oh, we heard that. We heard that." I was like, "Oh, I got my CDs here." And it was just like, and I, I, had, I had just been buying. I had like eighty discs at that point, or something like that. I eventually ended up having like I don't know four hundred hip hop records or something like that. So then it was just like then I just automatically got invited to everything because I had all the music mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I had people who would buy beer for me. So I was like, cause I, cause in England we were drinking from a younger age. And so I, everybody I hung out with was like, Oh yeah, he drinks. Like, whatever, he can have beer. So, uh, 
ended up so like through that it just I would start to uh, be at uh, be at parties and hear I hear somebody else play something that I'd never heard before that I thought was cool and like shit I gotta get it I gotta get it so I was just really like I was really crazy deep into hip hop right around until like No Limit really broke out mm-hmm. and when No Limit Records really like was like in the in the like in the thick of it when they were just releasing you know ten albums a month and everybody's on the record and they're just just churning stuff out and most of it's garbage and they're just making but then there's just like but there's a few gems and like somewhere around there I like got jaded in the whole hip hop scene at the time um, and that was maybe that was where I was at but I was just like man. I was like, why don't we spend all our time sitting around listening to these guys talk about how great they got it and how shitty our lives are <laughs> how great their lives are. And they got all these cars. I ain't got no cars. They got all these girls. They got no girls. Like, like, I was like, this is just weird. Like, I motherfucker, I know you're paid. I just bought your record for how... <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and I just, I, I felt like somewhere along the line that like, the soul had gone out of it. Then you start... Kind of like anything else, you start to see behind the scenes a little bit. I, I like Ice Cube was my shit. Like I put my I put my eggs in that Ice Cube basket. Like this, the hardest motherfucker that ever was, ever will be. Was the baddest rapper, wrote, wrote rhymes for everybody. He, he invented the game. Like and then you know, then I'll be there yet. And now it's just like oh god. <laughs>
Well, we got about five minutes left. Do you, did you want to uh, plug your uh, upcoming show at Dante's? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Service Night Celebration, the 30th of October, day before Halloween. Uh, $27 entrance, $20 with a costume. It's going to be all sorts of stuff. Come see the spectacle. Uh, it's uh, comedy, music, uh, acrobatics, and a little bit of darkness thrown in. So uh, come check us out. It'll be a real. Uh, it'll be the real deal. We got Mike Sprigo, Neptune's Chargers, uh, Confessions, Hijinks, and Full Metal Jackson. What's a what's the crowd look like at a Full Metal Jackson show? Uh, I mean, it's kind of it's it's interesting because we've got we definitely have a, you know mostly a metal following. But that's also because up until recently, most of the people uh, in the group have played in predominantly metal bands. Our new lead guitarist is actually more of like a funk blues jazz guy. Uh, and so he's going to have a whole different demographic who, uh, who you know, are used to seeing his other stuff coming out to check out what he's doing now. And uh, we're, uh, we're, so we're really hoping to try to sort of bridge a bit of, a bit of a gap so maybe draw in some Michael fans who aren't necessarily metal fans and, uh, you know, to uh, give some metal fans a slightly different uh, approach to Michael's music to appreciate, sort of maybe just uh, get to uh, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Get to reconnect with it in a in a in a fresh way. And um, yeah, I think I fall into that into that category because, like you said earlier, you kind of like it or you don't. And, and right. I've had a blast at metal shows, many of them, but it's never inspired me to go buy one to listen to in my car. You know, an album. Um, well, but, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty common thing, I think. Like, I mean, I, I, and I think that's up until very, very recently and still to this day, like, I think it's, it's it's live music at the end of the day. Right. And, and the first time, I mean, my, my father, both my parents didn't see me play metal till I was playing a metal band till I was quite older. Um, and my dad, my dad saw a rehearsal. And it was just like, you could sort of tell immediately, he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, I've heard you listen to this stuff in the car for however many years. He's like, you don't really get a sense of how much goes into it till you see it. Um, if you're, because if your ear's not tuned to it, it's just like, sounds like a bunch of distortion and static and screaming. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my mom too, you know, she's, she's more so, she like does not get it. She doesn't like it. She doesn't like the music. She doesn't like the singing. She doesn't like anything about it really. Uh, but she really enjoyed herself at the show. <laughs> she was dancing around and having a good time. And so, we, you know, we get, I think it could appeal to a lot of different people purely because we don't stick to any one style. So like, you know, if you're, if you're not really into more abrasive sort of heavy metal style, well, we got like a nice easy butt rock song for you to get down to next. And if you don't like butt rock, well, we got a little gothic doom for you next. And if you don't like gothic doom, well, that's all right because we got a little Van Halen one for you next. If you don't like Van Halen, that's all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got a little Black Sabbath number for you. So we're just trying to we're 
like I said, like the purpose of this is just is entertainment. Um, and uh, there's something about hearing songs that you know inherently that even you maybe haven't heard in a while performed in a completely different way that's just, uh, I don't know, it's, 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 it's just a little exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. I'd, I'd like to check it out sometime. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope you can make it to the show. And is there anywhere online to hear it? Yes, uh, if you go to fullmetaljackson.bandcamp.com, uh, we've got our, our, the single for Dangerous is out now. We're going to be releasing our new single for The Way You Make Me Feel in conjunction with this event on the 30th. And uh, I'm, I've still got a couple of potential uh, uh, guest appearances as well that uh, I'm not going to announce yet because they haven't been confirmed. But uh, it's exciting stuff, though. We'll see. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, yeah, our hour's up. Thank right. you again for uh, for coming back for part two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, we got. All right, there you have it. There was uh, Quentin Gardner talking a little bit about uh, Full Metal Jackson. Um, next week, I'm going to be talking to Rembrandt Street. He's a Shoshone Paiute and Navajo native uh, who contacted me, and uh, we are going to be discuss- uh, discussing. Um, uh, responsibilities we have to carry on tradition and message to future Native American generations. Um, this ought to be another interesting episode. Again, somebody I've never met and, and just got a, they actually got a hold of me. And uh, so we'll see how that goes. Thanks for listening. Uh, and if you made it all the way to the end, kudos to you. Have a good one. See ya.